Chapter Sixteen of the Real Oscar Wilde by Robert Sherard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From his conversation in those days, I gathered that he was enlarging his circle of acquaintances, and for the most part amongst Parisian artists. As a friend of Edmund Yates, proprietor and editor of The World, he had brought over to Paris an introduction to that famous Paris correspondent, Theodore Child who had piloted him to the houses of various of his friends it was through child that he came to know several painters for the most part ignored in those days but now of european reputation i remember his describing to me a visit he paid to the great degas to reach whose garret studio he had had to make the perilous ascent of a ladder he thought it necessary to explain degas art to me but i am afraid his disquisition was wasted upon me i did not understand it then i do not think that i should understand it now i never have been able to make up my mind whether oscar wilde was indeed qualified to speak as a critic of art of pictures that is to say or whether he postured as whistler accused him brutally of doing so as knowing a subject on which he was no better informed than you or i what has oscar in common with art asks whistler in a letter addressed to the world for seventeenth november eighteen eighty six except that he dines at our tables and picks from our platters the plums for the pudding he peddles in the provinces oscar the amiable irresponsible isurient oscar with no more sense of a picture than of the fit of a coat has the courage of the opinions of others it may be remembered that to this oscar replied in the following note which appeared in the world for november eighteen eighty six from oscar atlas this is very sad with our james vulgarity begins at home and should be allowed to stay there avou oscar this evoked from the spiteful james the following to whom a poor thing oscar but for once i suppose your own i have often wondered since why oscar wilde if it be true that he was not qualified to speak on pictures should have made the pretence to such knowledge i know that all his life he was interested in art he was a clever draughtsman in an admirable letter written from portora school to his mother when he was about fourteen years of age in which while asking her for some abstruse quarterly review the very last thing one would have expected a fourteen-year-old schoolboy to desire and commenting on the colour of some flannel shirts that his mother had sent him he sends her a caricature very skilfully done representing the werewolf ye hampelous boy while contemplating oscar and willie dealing with the contents of a hamper which lady wilde had sent them it is known further that when just before leaving oxford he was asked what profession he intended to follow he answered if i followed my inclination i would go and live in a garret in paris and paint beautiful pictures some of his original manuscript as for instance one of the pages of the sphinx is enlivened with little caricature sketches very cleverly done i do not think that his sense of colour has ever been contested i should say that possibly he only pretended to a larger knowledge of and a deeper interest in painting than he really possessed i remember that once 
having given me a reproduction of one of Pouvis de Chavannes' pictures, on which he had written the words, Rien ne vrai que le beau. He made certain suggestions as to how I ought to have the picture framed. The narrow wood border was to be coloured grey, with a fillet of vermilion bisecting it. The effect was decidedly unpleasing, and I have often thought since that he said the first things that came into his head and suggested vermilion because he liked the mouthing of that sonorous and pictorial word. I must quote here from another book of mine, Twenty Years in Paris, a passage in which I endeavoured to explain this foible of his, and to point out certain consequences which resulted to him from yielding to it. I think that the man who got closest to the truth in his reading of Wilde's character was the author of the review of De Profundis which appeared in the Times, when he refers to his assumption of characteristics and qualities which were not his own, which indeed were alien to his real nature. And I think that one great mistake which Oscar Wilde made in life was to profess knowledge on subjects of which he had been too indolent to study the technique. There are certain things which not the intuition of the greatest genius who ever lived can impart. One has to go to school and start at ABC under the shadow of the rod. There was nothing which he could not have done if he had cared to master essential rules. Feeling that he might have attained, had he chosen to do so, to almost universal knowledge, he allowed himself to assume it. He wrote and spoke on many subjects on which he was not qualified to write or speak, not because the profound comprehension of them was beyond his reach, but because he had neglected the preliminaries essential to this comprehension. I believe that this was the reason why, in Paris, he never enjoyed that admitted mastership which was his in England. The French do not believe in accomplishment by sheer force of intuition. They train their future masters of the arts. They insist upon technical training for even the rarest genius. They send Talma, Rachel, Sarah Bernhardt, Coquelin, Mounet Sully to school. They have the Beaux-Arts and Rome for their painters and sculptors, and Rome and the Conservatoire for their musicians and composers. If pretense there were, it was very well sustained and deceived many, not the least intelligent of his contemporaries. We read in Ernest La Jeunesse's masterly article on Oscar Wilde, written after his death, a tribute to his omniscience. Il savait tout, wrote Ernest La Jeunesse. With me, however, he spoke little about pictures. In matters of pictorial art and music, he considered me a philistine, indeed, more than once told me so. But we conversed almost continually on literature, in which my reading was at least as extensive as his own, and more diversified, for he knew neither German nor Italian. He was full in those days of the works of Balzac, as to which he said that they had escaped the usual fate of classics, books about which everybody talks, but which no one reads. I had read no Balzac at all at the time, and it was Oscar Wilde who revealed to me the wonderful humanities of the author of the human comedy. I remember one long noctambulous walk through moonlit Paris, during which he told me the story of Eugénie Grandet. He started talking as we were leaving the not-at-all-bad little eating-house on the Avenue de l'Opera. 
and brought the marvellous tale to a conclusion as we leant over the parapet of the pont neuf and watched the moon silvering the spires of notre dame when i came to read the story in its original form it seemed to me as balzac told it not at all equal in pathos to the version as rendered by wilde and i remember that years after i suggested to him that he should retell for the english-speaking world all balzac's stories he said i should consider it extremely impertinent on my part to do so theophile gautier and flaubert were two other french authors who were great in his mind at that time i learned most of the amoe camé from hearing him recite them when he was not talking about literature he used to entertain me with stories of his childhood which seems to have been a very happy one and i will remember the pride and enthusiasm with which he used to talk about his mother of his father he spoke with reverence and even detailed his foibles as though they called for admiration it was from his own lips another late walking night in paris that i listened to the lines requiescat and heard the story of the little sister isola dancing like a golden sunbeam about the house in speaking of whom he draw nearer to sensibility than on any other topic this little isola died on twenty third february eighteen sixty seven at the age of eight but lived eternally in her brother's memory not very long before he died he was speaking to me of her and he said that it was perhaps well that she had not lived to see me like this she was buried at mostrim the doctor to quote from stuart mason's wonderful bibliography quote, who attended isola in her illness described her as the most gifted and lovable child he had ever seen ozzy was at the time an affectionate gentle retiring dreamy boy of twelve at portora school whose lonely and inconsolable grief sought vent in long and frequent visits to his sister's grave in the village cemetery Unquote. this poem has by many critics been considered one of the best that oscar wilde ever wrote it was included in a volume entitled echoes from cottabos published in nineteen o six edited by professor r y tyrrell and sir edward sullivan and was spoken of in various reviews as the brightest gem in the collection as a lovely dirge published already in several anthologies but too good not to bear quoting once more and in the daily news as the best thing in the book he had already in those days a liking for the morbid and was a great reader of baudelaire whom he frequently quoted the fleur de mal was a bedside book of his at the hotel de quai voltaire he delighted in that dreadful poem la charogne in which a lover addressing his fair one describes how in a country walk he came across the decaying carcass of some animal details the horrors that he saw in progress and exclaims such will you be o queen of graces i never gathered whether it was the skill of baudelaire's technique in this poem or the macabre horror of its subject that principally attracted him for he was perhaps equally enthusiastic about that other beautiful poem entitled la musique which begins la musique souvent me prend comme mère vers ma pâle étoile sous un plafond de brume ou dans un vaste éther 
Je mets à la voile. Another poem in this book which he used to quote as a model of style and beauty was the one called Les Inconnus. A man is sitting outside a boulevard café. A woman dressed in deep mourning passes. They exchange glances. The woman passes on. A lightning flash, then the night. The poet asks, will he ever see her again? Elsewhere, far from here, too late, never, perhaps. O toi que j'eusse aimé, o toi qui le savais. But that he had a hankering after the horrible was shown me when one day he asked me to dine with him at the Hôtel Voltaire with Rollinat, a decadent poet who had recently published a terrible book called The Hand of Tropman, which contained the long poem from which the volume took its name, a poem which described, with every horrid detail, those dreadful murders with which the name of Tropman is associated in eternal infamy. Rollinat, who afterwards rescued himself from his surroundings and became a distinguished musician, to meet eventually, alas, with an end of unspeakable cruelty, was then in his absinthe days, and I can remember few more dreadful moments than when, after dinner was over, he treated us to a mimetic recitation of this poem. I was for leaving the room, but was checked by our host, who seemed to be enjoying the ghastly performance intensely. When the poet, foaming at the mouth and shaking all over from nervous exhaustion, had finished, and sank back on the couch from which he'd risen to speak his lines, Wilde thanked him with the most exaggerated praise, and addressed him as Master. At the same time he showed an intense delight in worthier verse. He had a farrago of quotations from the English poets in his head, and most delighted in Keats and Shelley. I think that of all that Keats wrote, he chiefly admired the Ode to a Grecian Urn. The superior Ode to a Nightingale I never heard him mention. In the Grecian Urn, the lines he seemed fondest of, by reason, as he explained, of their pathos, were those beginning, What little town by river or seashore? The poor little town, he said, emptied of its folk. Poor little town. What was pathetic and expressed in simple language seemed to make a special appeal to him. The quotation from Shelley which I most frequently heard from him were those towards the end of the Cenci, where Beatrice, going out to execution, begs her mother to tie up my hair in any simple knot. Witnessing the real delight he took in the simple and pathetic, I could not but feel that his professed admiration for the horrors of Baudelaire and Rollinat was but a pose, as much a pose as his professed liking for absinthe, when he first took to drinking that poison as an aperitif. In later years he used frequently to recommend the reading and study of Chatterton to people who wrote to him for advice on literary study. I never once heard him refer to this poet in those days when we ranged together the whole of the English Parnassus, and cannot even now understand what it was in Chatterton that particularly appealed to him. He was, by the way, always ready to assist those who came to him for advice, I append a copy of a letter which he wrote from Tite Street to a young man who had written to him, sending him a manuscript, 
and asking him for guidance to literary success i have been laid up with a severe attack of asthma he wrote and have been unable to answer your letter before this i return you your manuscript as you desire and would advise you to prune it down a little and send it to either time or longmans it is better than many magazine articles though if you will allow me to say so it is rather belligerent in tone as regards your prospects in literature believe me that it is impossible to live by literature by journalism a man may make an income but rarely by pure literary work i would strongly advise you to try and make some profession such as that of a tutor the basis and mainstay of your life and to keep literature for your finest rarest moments the best work in literature is always done by those who do not depend upon it for their daily bread and the highest form of literature poetry brings no wealth to the singer for producing your best work also you will require some leisure and freedom from sordid care it is always a difficult thing to give advice but as you are younger than i am i venture to do so make some sacrifice for your art and you will be repaid but ask of art to sacrifice herself for you and a bitter disappointment may come to you i hope it will not but there is always a terrible chance with your education you should have no difficulty in getting some post which should enable you to live without anxiety and to keep for literature your most felicitous moods to attain this end you should be ready to give up some of your natural pride but loving literature as you do i cannot think that you would not do so finally remember that london is full of young men working for literary success and that you must carve your way to fame laurels don't come for the asking yours oscar wilde with letters like these and often by direct exertion he helped scores of men and women i remember one prominent dramatist to whom he opened his successful career by guaranteeing the expenses of a trial matinee of his first play if the play had failed oscar wilde would have been two or three hundred pounds out of pocket it succeeded and the young author was launched like nearly every one whom wilde had helped with counsel or direct assistance of person or purse he was one of those who spoke most bitterly against him when the debacle came he was heard to say that he trusted the wretch would get twenty years penal servitude poor oscar wilde had a capacity for making enemies because when there was a bon mot to be turned he did not stop to consider how the person against whom it was directed would appreciate or condone its sting from the very first days of my acquaintance i noticed this habit of his of saying bitter things about people just perhaps witty always but such as his victims would remember rancorously there had been at the dinner at which i first met him the son of a famous pianiste and when i mentioned this fact to him he remarked well i am glad to see that he has managed to survive it and this is only one of the remarks of that nature which i heard him utter End of chapter 16